This morning we're going to continue through our series, the book of Matthew. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 18. And we're going to talk about being the people of Christ, being the people of Christ. But before we do, let's pray together again. Father, we just ask for your help now to hear from you. Help us to hear your voice, Lord Jesus, from these pages. Lord, speak to us. Um, You said your sheep would recognize your voice, Lord. Help us to hear you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 18. Um, as you do, I just want to remind you of a very famous story. There were two brothers, and they came to offer their offerings to the Lord. And um, my perspective on it is God could see into their hearts, and he could see one. And his heart was humble and loving and gracious, and he could see the other. Brother's heart and his heart was proud and arrogant and self-sufficient. And he accepted the one brother's offering and he rejected the other brother's offering. Those brothers were Cain and Abel. And Cain became so bitter and so angry over what had happened. God came and told him, he said, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. But the problem with Cain is that he opened the door. He didn't rule over his sin. He let sin rule over him. He invited his brother into the field, and he struck him and killed him. And God came to him and said, where's your brother? He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's? keeper God said the blood of your brother cries out from the ground to me so we get a lesson from in the very beginning of the Bible an important lesson that takes on even more significance as followers of Jesus Christ and that is that we are our brother's keeper. We have responsibility toward one another. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning as we talk about being the people of Christ, being the people of Christ. And we see this in Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 14. If you have a Bible and you're able and willing, I invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. I'm going to read Matthew chapter 18, Verses 1 through 14. It says, At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives 
one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Word of God. Maybe seated. I'm going to explore this text under four headings this morning. Number one, humble hearts. Humble hearts. Number two, protecting hands. Protecting hands. Number three, radical holiness. Radical holiness. And number four, full house. Full house. But first we're going to talk about humble hearts. Humble hearts. We want to remember where we are in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, We've talked about the uh, transfiguration. And uh, Jesus is beginning his final approach to Jerusalem. uh, That will end in his crucifixion on a Roman cross. Chapter 18 also begins what is known as Jesus' fourth discourse in the book of Matthew. Most commentators recognize that Matthew is broken down into five discourses or blocks of teaching that are separated by narrative accounts. This is the beginning of his fourth discourse. And... um, So the first one was the Sermon on the Mount. The second discourse is Jesus' teaching of his disciples concerning their mission and the cost that they would have to pay as followers of Jesus Christ. That's in Matthew 10. Matthew 13, the third discourse is his parables, his kingdom parables. And so this fourth discourse here delineates what it is like to be part of the community of the citizens of the kingdom of God. And in my opinion, this makes sense because as Jesus is beginning his final approach to Jerusalem and he's about to be crucified and raised from the dead and ascended to heaven, he has to begin to get a little bit clearer about what it's going to mean for them to follow him when he is no longer physically present with them. Okay, so he uh, is beginning here to lay out relationship among the people of God, okay, in, um, in the coming days. And so he's given special attention to the community of his disciples. Now, 
this, um, this, this initial part of our passage here is prompted by this question from the disciples. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Okay, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So, as Jesus is explaining about kingdom community, he is explaining to them how the community of saints is to be different than the world. We relate a different way. We think about ourselves in a different way. We posture ourselves in a different way than other people do and other groups of people do. A pre, in the kingdom of God, a premium is placed not on external greatness, but on internal humility. A premium is placed not on asserting oneself, but on denying oneself. And this is very different than the world. It's a different kind of place, it's a different kind of kingdom, it's a different kind of way of thinking and being in the world. Matthew just records the question, but... Uh, but Mark says that it came from a debate that they were having on their journey, a debate concerning which of them is the greatest or would be the greatest in the kingdom. And Jesus answers, as he often does, with a living parable, a living illustration. He calls a child and he brings a child into their midst. And he says, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. That's how you're great in the kingdom of heaven. But what's the comparison that Jesus is making towards childlikeness? That's the key question. What's the comparison that he's making? Because not every comparison to children in the Bible is a positive one. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul says, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil. But in your thinking, be mature. And so he's, he's not saying be immature like a child, right? He's not saying think, you know, think like a child in terms, of, uh, in terms of maturity. We ought to be mature Christian, wise Christians, discerning Christians. But what then is he telling us to be like when he says to be like children? Where he says it there in verse 4, he says we must humble ourselves like children. The childlikeness Jesus commands is the humility of children. In what ways are small children humble? Now, it doesn't take long for children to get proud, but small children oftentimes are still humble. That is, they still, just if nothing else, because of their size, they recognize that they're not in a position to be picking fights. Right? They're still humble in that regard. They... They're, they're, they're okay to be dependent. They're content to know that they don't know it all and they look for their parents for guidance and for instruction. They're not looking to lead, they're looking to be led. I 100% believe that. We're to lead our children. And if you don't lead your children, somebody else will. And if you abdicate that responsibility to a screen or to their peers or to music that they listen to, or to the TV, or whatever, then guess what? Somebody is still leading your children. It's just not you. Children look to be led. They, look, they, they need to be protected. They need to be guided. They need to be told what is right and what is wrong. Where to go, where not to go. What to do and what not to do. They know that. They need that. When I'm in public with my, with my, my three-year-old or my two-year-old, 
okay, and somebody comes up to me that they don't know, what do they do? They get right behind me and cling to my leg like a leech. Why? Because daddy's bigger than they are. Because daddy seems familiar with this situation and is going to be able to handle it for me. The greatest in the kingdom of heaven is the one who's not ashamed to cling to God's leg like a leech. Who's not too proud to say, God, I have no idea what I'm doing. I need some help. I need you to show me where to go. I need you to, I need you to handle the situation. Because I don't know what to do. This is too big for me. That's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So you want to be great? You want to be truly great? Then make yourself low. Make yourself nothing. Be content to be like Jesus, who came not to be served, but to serve. And gave his life as a ransom for many. Be like a child who hesitates to do anything, even little things, in your own power. But has no hesitation in leaning on God for his power. Be like a child who knows that they couldn't even make it a single day without daddy's help. His strength, his power, his provision, his protection. When we stop. (laughs) when we stop thinking we got it figured out and we start trusting God and leaning on Him to do what only God can do, that's when we become great in the kingdom of heaven. The key that opens the door to the kingdom of God is a humble heart. And that's why Jesus said, unless you humble yourself like one of these children, you can't even enter the kingdom of heaven. Because there's a measure of humility that it takes even to acknowledge that you're a sinner and to confess that sin and to repent of that sin and to acknowledge that you need Jesus so that you can believe in him and trust in him. So without that, you can't even enter the kingdom of heaven. But those who are greatest in the kingdom of heaven are those who were the least in their own eyes. So number one, the way we live as the community of God or we are people of humble hearts. We're children. We're okay to cling to daddy's leg. So number one, humble hearts. Number two, protecting hands. Protecting hands. In verse five, Jesus says, whoever receives one one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And so Jesus, I believe, is continuing his emphasis here on life together as the people of God. He's talking about the importance 
of loving one another. Receiving, uh, this language of receiving somebody in the New Testament is language of acceptance. It's language of, of embrace in the, the Gospel of John, the first chapter. He said, whoever received him that has received, whoever received him who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. This reception means kind of an, an embrace and acceptance of them as, as of God, as, as from God. It involves care and hospitality, loving them. So when he's talking about receiving, whoever receives a such child as my name, he's probably talking about receiving other believers, loving one another, caring for one another, taking care of one another, receiving one another as fellow citizens of the kingdom of God. When you receive other believers in Jesus's name and you care for them and you take care of them, Jesus says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fast around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. So uh, this, um, this oh, contrast that he's setting up here, it's, there's this contrast that says between receiving a child in my name, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. So there's this contrast kind of being set up of, Receiving involves this idea of caring for and, and, and embracing, and the opposite of that would be rejecting them, not, 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 not caring for, not receiving other believers, and that would be a temptation for them to sin. And the most striking thing about this passage is the severity with which Jesus speaks of the, of the danger of sin and of temptation to sin. There's a severity with which Jesus treats putting a stumbling block in front of other believers, in front of, in front of people. Be better for him to have a millstone fastened around his neck and, and drown in the depths of the sea. You see, it's bad enough when we sin ourselves. But it's real bad when we lead others into sin. What, is that, what does it mean? It means we're our brother's keeper. Right? It means we have a responsibility, not just for ourselves. It's not just, you know, don't believe that lie. It's not just about me and my own and me. It's about my life always affects others. Always. There's no such thing as an anonymous sin. There's no such thing as a sin that only affects you. There's some people... They have these secret sins and they think it's not a big deal because it's only affecting me. It doesn't only affect you. Ever. Ever. It will come out and it will hurt you. It will hurt those who love you. It'll be a stumbling block and a temptation to others. There's no such thing as just individual sin.
That's why he says it'd be better for a millstone to be tied around his neck and thrown into the depths of the sea. That's what, that's what, that's what the story of, of Cain and Abel is about. We are our brother's keeper. We do have responsibility toward one another. We have responsibility. Look around this room. We have responsibility to do everything that we can to make sure everyone else in this room makes it to heaven. So it's not just me, I hope I get there. It's we have a responsibility towards one another to help one another get there. So if I so so it's not so I have a responsibility not just to regard myself, but to protect others, to guard others, to warn others against sin, to lead others into not sinning. That's why and and I mean our personal life does have a great effect in that, right? Because when I live a holy life. And other people see that, that encourages them to live a holy life. But if I am dabbling around and playing with sin, that encourages other people to do the same thing. And we become a temptation to others. And so we have to think about how our actions affect not just us, but our other people because we have responsibility towards one another. You have responsibility towards one another. He said, woe to the world for temptations to sin. And then he says this remarkable things. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. Temptations are going to come. They must come. They have to come. The question is, who, they're gonna come, who are they going to come through? And this is Jesus' warning to us, saying, better not come through me. It's this tension there in the Bible. In John 13, 18 of Judas Iscariot, Jesus said of Judas, it says, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. In fact, Jesus said of Judas, it'd be better for that man that he had never been born. Woe to the one by whom the temptations come. He was not his brother's keeper, but we must be our brother's keeper. So as we think about living together in community, we must always remember how our actions and words affect other people. And pray that God would, not, would lead us not to temptation and would lead us not to lead others into temptation. So number one, humble hearts. Number two, protecting hands. Number three, radical holiness. Verses 8 through 9 there are a repetition of almost uh, almost exact wording um, from the Sermon on the Mount. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes and to be thrown into the hell of fire. And so, if you haven't picked up on this by now, what Jesus is saying is that we have to take sin seriously. We have to take it seriously in other people's lives. It's so serious. Sin is so serious to God that we, we, must, we must do everything we can so not just that we don't sin, but so that other people don't sin. Because they're going to be held accountable for that sin. So if there's anything that we can do to help other people from not sinning, we're going to do that. 
Just as if there's anything that we can do to keep ourselves from sinning. We're going to do that. Why? Because it's better to enter heaven with no hands and feet than to enter hell whole. God can give you your hands and feet back. But it doesn't matter how many limbs you have in hell. So he warns us to love each other by causing one another not to sin. And the next one concerns our own sin. This is a call here to be drastic. Drastic in the way that we deal with our sin. And we have to because it is so deadly and it is so dangerous. And all the devil needs is a toe in the door. That's it. Better people than you and I, their lives have been ruined because they let the devil have a toe in the door. And rather than being drastic with their sin, they played around with it. They toyed with it. They said it wasn't a big deal. Until it was too late. And that's, what it, that's, and that's what it's saying here. If your right hand causes you to sin, if, you, if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. That means be drastic. That means we can't play around with it. That means we have to take it seriously. We might, <laughs> we might think we're playing games, but God ain't playing games. The devil ain't playing games. And so... Whatever you got to do, he's saying, do it. Be drastic. Cut it off. Don't play games with your sin. Do things that other people would say, what's wrong with you? And you say, I got to. And people might not understand. You know what? It doesn't matter if, if, if other people don't understand. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if they understand or not. No, I'm not going to go there. I just can't. No, I'm not going to hang out with those people. Because when I do, I end up doing this. I'm not. I'm just not. I know you don't like it. I know you don't understand. But I'm just, I'm not going to do it. You know? No. I'm not going to have internet in my house. Might not understand it. Might not make sense. How can you live without the internet? I don't know. They just did it for a few thousand years. But if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to go into heaven without internet than go to hell with your mind full of garbage. If you've got to do something drastic, then do it. Why? Because sin is serious. The world, the flesh, and the devil are telling us in a billion ways it's not. But I'm telling you it is. Jesus is telling you it is. So cut it off. And when you do, lean on others. This is, why, this is one of the reasons why I'm pushing discipleship groups so much. 
is because it's so easy to be anonymous. It's so easy to show up, go home, not have a single real spiritual conversation all week, and then repeat. Nobody knows what's going on. Nobody knows what's happening because you're anonymous. Well, guess what? It takes effort to not be anonymous. The devil wants you anonymous. One of the most, one, I heard a quote one time I never forgot. It said, anonymity breeds sin. It's dangerous when other people don't know what you're doing. Why? Because I can't be trusted and you can't be trusted. Do you, do you trust yourself? I'm not that brave. That's why we have to lean on others. That's why we have to open our lives to others, expose our lives to others, put ourselves in situations where we're not anonymous, but that people know what's going on in our lives. Don't be struggling in secret. Why? Because sins are like roaches. They run when you turn on the lights. You got to turn on the lights. You got to open the door. Got to let people in. Bring it into the light. Tell somebody that you're struggling. Become part of a, a group and a community of people that can pray for you and walk with you. And again, we owe this not just to God, but to ourselves and to other people, right? Because the holier that we can be, by God's strength and by God's grace, the more we can help other people do the same, right? That's, that's God's goal, right? God wants, we, yes, we all struggle in our own ways too, but at the same time, God doesn't just want us to be wallowing or struggling with our own sins because we, we, we don't just need it. We need, to, we need to reach a point, again, where children, you know, are dependent and, you know, they need help because they can't help themselves. But in the Christian life, we need to grow up to maturity to where eventually we're not just having to need help from other people. That way we can help other people. Amen. But if we're still struggling, we're not going to be in a position to help anybody else. So God can take us there, but we have to bring it into the light. So number one, humble hearts. Number two, protecting hands. Number three, Radical holiness. Um, radical holiness, and number four, full house. He says, See that you not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. So Jesus here, he's, he's warning us again. He says, see that you not despise one of these little ones. And so again, he, he's probably talking about um, the humble, and, and it's possible that he's talking about 
those who might be less esteemed in the world, especially less esteemed in the community of faith. And he's saying, don't despise these. He says, for I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. This is a very interesting verse. There's not a whole lot that we can say about it definitively, except this is the verse where the idea of guardian angels comes from. But it is remarkable to think about angels, who they are, what they do. The Bible says they're ministering spirits to help those who are to inherit salvation. If you think about that, that's remarkable because angels, in some senses, are greater beings than us. And yet, why do they exist? To serve us. Which is why Jesus said, when he was being arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, and Peter tried to fight for him, he said, Do you not know that I could call down twelve legions of angels? If he wanted to, but that wasn't the plan. So God, so God has appointed his angels over his sheep, over his people. And so don't despise anyone. Don't despise, especially another Christian. Why? Because God has angels looking out for them. What do you think? Man has a hundred sheep. One of them goes astray. Leaves the ninety-nine. Go in search of that one. You see, Jesus, he cares about the ones that other people don't care about. And if there's a sheep that's wandering, he says, the shepherd goes after it. All right? You see, and I'm, I'm, I'm guilty. I'll just tell you I'm guilty. A sheep goes wandering, right? And the temptation is to just say, let them go. That's the way they went. They chose it, so just let them go. But that's not what God does. Thank God that's not what God does. He goes after the wandering sheep. And he goes and finds them. And he brings them back. He says it's not his will that one of these little ones should perish. What's he talking about? Well... He said earlier about the, 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 the sin, and remember this is all the context together. It says it's, uh, it's, it's better to enter into heaven lame than enter into the eternal fire, better to enter uh, the whole. So that's the kind of perishing that he's talking about. He's talking about eternal perishing, eternal suffering. Jesus, our shepherd, came to deliver us from ourselves, to find us in our wandering so that we might not suffer the perishing of eternal damnation. He goes and he finds his sheep. And that's what Jesus did. And that's what Jesus is doing. Is he is going and he's finding his sheep. It's not his will that one of these little ones should perish. 
God loves not just the sheep who stuck close, but he also loves the sheep that wander. And sometimes those sheep can be the hardest to love. And then you remember, wait, I am that sheep. I'm the one who just keeps going back. But Jesus will have a full house. He's not going to let one go missing. In John 10, Jesus put it this way. He said, I am the good shepherd. The shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. So Jesus is going after his sheep. It's not a hope upon hope. It's not a wish upon wish. Jesus will gather his sheep. And not one of them will be missing. He has more sheep out there. And he's going to find them. And he's going to use us to do it. And so as we close this morning, what do we learn this today from being the people of God? We, must lo- we learn that we must have humble hearts. We come not to be served, but to serve. We must have protecting hands. That is, we are our brother's keeper. That means we do reflect on how our actions and words affect other people. And whether we're encouraging people to greater holiness, or whether we're leading them into temptation. We take our own holiness very seriously because we recognize the severity of sin and we do whatever it takes to cut sin out of our lives. And then finally, we look on others with the eyes of Christ. We go and find the wandering because God came and found us. And there's more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who's gone astray than over 99 who didn't go astray. And so as we close this morning, just want to say Jesus is still in the business of finding lost sheep. And maybe you're in here this morning and maybe you've just, maybe you've just, you've wandered. And maybe this morning Jesus has found you again. It's never too late. 
to come back home. You can repent of your sins. You can believe in Jesus. You can be part of the family of God. Let's pray together.